Welcome to the Told Me podcast series to learn and develop for medical educators from the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge in teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. Today, we are dedicating this first podcast to talking about racism in medicine and medical education, one of the most critical and timely issues we are facing as citizens of this country, but also as physicians and educators. Over the past seven months, we have witnessed the most unified call to action for racial justice since the civil rights movement. In medical schools, we are seeing courage and activism from our students, staff, and faculty. Medical schools and professional organizations are responding with commitments to dismantle the institutional racism that was constructed over hundreds of years. These commitments are no easy task, and many faculty are asking themselves and their institutions many questions, like, what can I as an individual do when so much needs to be done? Why are we talking about racism rather than bias in general? Or why now in the midst of a pandemic? Or how do I talk about these complex issues with my learners? It's a good thing we have Dr. David Acosta here today to help us answer some of these very tough questions. Dr. Acosta is the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the Association of American Medical Colleges, called the AAMC. He provides strategic vision and leadership for the AAMC's diversity and inclusion activities across the medical education community and leads the association's Diversity Policy and Programs Unit. Dr. Acosta, a family medicine physician, joined the AAMC from the University of California Davis School of Medicine, where he served as Senior Associate Dean for Equity and Diversity. Before heading to UC Davis, he founded the University of Washington School of Medicine's Center for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, and their Center for Cultural Proficiency in Medical Education. In 2018, we were lucky enough to have Dr. Acosta as our keynote speaker for Netter's Inclusion and Diversity Symposium. David, welcome back to Netter, and thank you for being our first guest in our faculty development podcast series. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to be back to Netter. Thanks. I thought it might be useful to start out this big conversation by talking a bit about definitions to set the stage for our discussion. The annual conference of the WMC called Learn, Serve, Lead was held two weeks ago, and it was incredible to see the number of workshops, plenaries, and discussions that were dedicated to addressing racism. We often talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in medical education, but we haven't talked as much about racism in medical education until now. Why are we focused specifically on racism now rather than the broader construct of bias? Oh, that's a good question, Lisa, and I think you've already kind of alluded to it in your introduction. When I think about the specific events that happened around us, especially over these last seven months, as you mentioned, you know, I think that has in itself has sparked the necessity. What I'm really talking about is the recent murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, along with the Black Lives Matter movement, and also at the same time how the COVID-19 pandemic has really laid bare those health inequities that have been there for decades, but also the resultant health disparities we started seeing and the harm it inflicted upon our Black, Latinx, and American Indian communities. 
really exposing the structures and the systems and the policies that have created a lot of the social and economic conditions that we witnessed that led to these poor outcomes during the pandemic. You know, and so rather than just talking about bias, it's really important for us to begin drilling down and to be more specific about bias and talk about specifically racial bias and systemic racism. You know, topics that, you know, our academic medical community, um, our community-based physicians have really not really felt very comfortable with discussing uh, over the years. And usually those of us that have benefited from, and usually that's those of us that have benefited from the most uh, from these structural inequities that have been in place for decades. I I think you're, I think also you're right in, in what I hear you saying is, I think racism is a more uncomfortable word for people than bias. And I think maybe we've gotten to this place where we need to speak the word. Um, and maybe that's that discomfort might be helpful. Well, and that discomfort, it can be, um, sometimes it'll set us into a motion of becoming defensive or going into silence or just going into uncertainty because people really don't know, God, where do I even begin starting to talk about this as well? And so I think we also have just come to that realization and not make the assumption that, you know, we as physicians, we as medical educators really have the skill sets that are needed to have these interracial dialogues because that becomes really important. But just like all of us, we go back in our history when we first became physicians and first got trained and, and went out into, you know, society to begin practicing, you know, we needed to develop those skill sets anyway of how to be a physician. And this is really no different. If we can just draw from that experience of saying, in these vulnerable spaces, we I look at us as being experts in vulnerability, especially in how we have dealt with our, uh, how we approach our patients and deal with the issues that we deal with every day. And how can we still use that mindset, that feeling, some of that comfort in a vulnerable space to learn about what we don't know? We're really good at that. And I think we can still use that. This is an opportunity for us to do the same with being able to develop the skill sets we need to know how to talk about race and racism. I I love that. I haven't I haven't thought of it that way. And I, I think that's very helpful to think of us as experts in vulnerability. It's just approaching it with humility. I was really struck during the meeting, um, Ibram Kendi, for those who might not be familiar with him, he's one of the he was one of the most notable plenary speakers at the AAMC conference. And he's a historian of race and discriminatory policy in America. And he is an author. He's won the National Book Award. And he had another great analogy that stood out for me. He said that, and I should say he's also he's also been battling um, colon cancer. And he said that he knew that when the doctor, gave him chemotherapy and he as a patient felt bad and scared and hurt that the doctor wasn't trying to hurt him. He was trying to help him. And he said, similarly, when he talks to people about racism and it hurts or it's uncomfortable, he wants them to know that the work is good and will ultimately help. And I, and that's exactly what I hear you saying in another very eloquent way in that vulnerability piece. I love that. And I totally agree with you in that sense. It's a, it's, I think, you know, in what we try to do as physicians is we, we try to understand the suffering of the other, right? Uh, we try to be in that space with them. We try to be in their same shoes to try to understand 
what they are going through. But not only them, but also their families, um, their spouses, their significant others, but also the communities. This this whole notion of the ripple effect of the burden of suffering and trying to understand that so we can provide better care for them and understand that. And I think racism is really no different in that sense because it is hurtful, you know, especially when we started looking at some of the uh, ramifications that the pandemic uh, had upon many of our vulnerable communities out there as well. It's so important for us to understand, you know, the historical trauma that some of these communities have experienced over decades and not necessarily caused by us today, but decades of this burden of suffering that has occurred because of these racial inequities that um, have created these poor health outcomes for them as well. And not just in health, but in many other, uh, many other elements that we, we term and call social determinants of health. And, and that's where I hear you referring to a lot of people are saying, you know, this is our, this public health crisis of the pandemic mm-hmm. is um, exposing the existing public health crisis of racism that oh, ex- we have. Exactly. And, it, and, and it's a nice time for people finally realizing. And I think what's really interesting is that um, our new generation of learners today have been calling this out for probably over a past year to two years and saying that. They have recognized racism in in healthcare as being a public health issue. So I have to applaud our our generation of learners of really kind of bringing that to light um, because they get it, they understand it, and I think they're really waiting for us to basically begin uh, coming to that same understanding. And now it's really you know I applaud that you know more and more institutions and agencies and organizations are starting to call this out, which I think is great. And that's what we're witnessing at the local level as well. So let's talk about that institutional piece. So I know that the AAMC is very focused on the process of dismantling racism in medical education and addressing the lived experience of the BIPOC medical student and BIPOC standing for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. What are the most important things that we should think about as our first step at the institutional level? So, you know, I, I think the way I would approach it is, is uh, no matter if you are a large medical center or a small clinic, um, and no matter where you are, whether, whether you're in the urban setting, suburban setting, or even in the rural setting, what I'm going to say is, is going to apply to to every situation that I think is out there. And just globally, I think the work, when you start thinking about anti-racist work and where does it begin and where can an institution begin, you know, it always starts about looking inward, um, you know, looking in the mirror sort of thing. And it starts at, at really three different levels um, that we can begin doing it. First, it starts with the individual level. And it's asking some really difficult questions of ourselves as we self-reflect. You know, a question such as, how am I contributing to institutional racism? It's not something that I think we as individuals think about every day, but taking pause to ask that. But this also includes um, this notion of being silent when I witness uh, racial bias, discrimination that's in front of me, asking ourselves, why am I being silent? Why don't I call this out? And then lastly, even as medical educators too, you know, how is my work contributing to institutional racism? way that I've developed curriculum, things that I included in or specifically don't include it that basically uh, are due to racism, the way that I teach, the way that I respond to some of my students, whether it's in the, at the bedside or whether it's in the classroom. 
you know, am I considering even things like race-based medicine and using some of the algorithms and formulations we've had of instilling race in it as if it was a biological or genetic construct when we all know that it's a political social construct? You know, at the departmental level, it's then now we have this collective, right? So it's not just us as an individual. So the dynamic that as we get together, you know, how are we collectively as a group um, contributing to institutional racism? And then finally, at the, the institutional level, you know, this brings in the leadership. How is the leadership contributing to institutional racism, but also societal racism? You know, we are all in anchor institutions uh, within communities that we're a part of and that we serve. And so the real question we have to ask ourselves, too, is that how is our communities experiencing us that they may see as um, racist attitudes, racist behaviors, or even racist policies and processes that impact them as well. Secondly, I think also, as I mentioned, is not only looking inward, but it starts in our own house. And this is about exploring and understanding the history of our own institution. You know, some of our institutions of medicine have a racist past. And I think the work starts with acknowledging that. And if it's not in your house, if you're lucky to be an institution that doesn't have a racist past, then it's really important for us to re-explore the racist past of academic medicine and healthcare in the past. And understanding that, it's, under, it's important to understand that because it actually shapes our understanding of how we as an institution got here and what is being sustained to, um, with intention to keep the status quo that benefits the usual suspects and disadvantages those groups that have always been excluded. Um, really trying to understand also uh, and being sensitized to the historical trauma that many of our population groups have, that we take care of, that have been suffering, um, that informs us better of, of understanding, for example, where, how did mistrust you know, develop, uh, the mistrust that our communities have of our health systems, and especially our racial and ethnic and other marginalized groups that they tend to maintain, and trying to understand how they think our his health system has failed them. So for us to kind of repair that harm and to be addressing it, it really starts with understanding that history. And that's actually an expectation from our communities so that we can actually really take the time out to do that. Thank you, David. That is a very helpful framework for us to think about how we need to address our actions at every level from the individual to the institution. And I want to come back to that individual level. Um, I heard you saying that we need courage in our um, external behaviors and also that we need courage to look internally as well. And so, so here at Netter, we are working at the institutional level and we are actively working on initiatives to address and deconstruct racist structures in our own system. And we're also expanding faculty development programs to help educators address racial inequities in their teaching and the learning experiences of our students. However, we want faculty or anybody who's listening today to feel empowered as individuals to move the needle in the right direction, to be courageous um, internally and with their behavior. So what can an individual faculty or staff or student do for that matter um, to address racism? 
So f- first of all, I want to applaud your efforts at Netter. It's exciting to hear you say that you're starting to work on initiatives to begin addressing and deconstruct these um, racist structures um, that you've identified. With. So I need to applaud you because, again, that's a lot of the work that, that needs to be done. You know, and I, and I think what's really important is that um, this work, like anything else um, that's important and meaningful, um, this is not a place where we have to, where we, where we, where we are risk averse. There is going to be some threat to our social capital and our political capital. And that just comes with, with this work that needs to be done. But in the realities, I think when I think about the return of investment after this, um, I think we will see marketed benefits, not only just for us as colleagues and, and improving our dialogues, our conversation, our relationship, but also for the patients that in turn that, again, are going to experience us, you know, um, you know, in the healthcare sphere as well. So I think there's a major benefit. Um, you know, I think, I think for the individual faculty and staff members, I, I think the important piece is this. As you do your self-reflection, I think what's really important is to recognize and respect that, you know, everyone is starting at a different place with this work. We can't assume that um, people are all at ground zero. You know, there are some individuals who have already done some self-reflection and have done some self-education and um, essentially are developing their own expertise uh, in this because they feel the call to action is so important for themselves. But it's at the same time respecting those individuals who may not have the capacity or have not really taken um, taking the time to pause and, and develop some of those skill sets and therefore, you know, feel very vulnerable and very uncertain about this too. You know, and again, I think this, you had mentioned the word humility, Lisa, that I think is really important. And, you know, the whole notion about approaching this with, with cultural humility is really to understand um, the perspectives of the other. And don't assume that we know where everybody is coming from because they may not be in the same space that, that you are. And that is so important in order to have the conversations we have to have. And also the important piece about this is that how can each of us um, begin to contribute to developing a brave space? Uh, brave space being a place where um, we can trust each other. We can also be very authentic and we can really feel freely to talk about our lived experience without the fear of people judging us or the, or the fear of retribution, if I'm very honest. And this allows a lot of our identities to come forward. You know, the reality, we all have these multiple identities, and that's what makes us up. That makes us, that's how we see the world is through the multiple identities that I have. What I mean by this, I'm not just a physician, I'm not just male, I'm not just heterosexual, and I'm not just Latino. I have all these identities that identify and put together, create my perspectives of how I see the world, um, create my perspectives of how I make decisions, um, how I see the other. And we're all the same in that sense. It seems that that so much of the work to move forward is all about dialogue. And, and I would also add our willingness to change, our openness to see ourselves as we truly operate and as we truly are. Because I think most of the time, the hardest part is that I think people don't see themselves as being racist, right? Um, it's, a, it's a negative um, behavior and a negative element that people don't want to claim. And it's really hard to basically think about 
gosh, you know, am I really performing in a racist way? It's because we have these different visions and stereotypes of what a racist really is. Um, and those are the ones that are easy to see. But I think the other thing that's really important about this particular work, it, again, it is really, it starts with us as we talked about as well. But it's also really understanding what are some of the subtle manifestations of racism that I may not be aware of and I really don't see that I need to see in order for us to move forward. And that's what I think this work is going to bring out. I'm curious if if you ever have any recommendations for people in terms of they say, I, I want to learn more. Where should I go to learn more? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and what I was going to offer, Lisa, is that the AAMC over the last uh, six months has put together a number of resources um, that we can make available to to any of the listeners, um, uh, to you, um, that are there. Because the nice part about this is that, number one, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are some amazing resources that are out there that people have already done the work. And I think the sweet spot for this is that it really addresses people at whatever level that they're at, Right. And so what we try to do is, you know, focus on the three different buckets that I mentioned, you know, the individual level, the departmental level, the institutional level, um, and have created a, a collection, really, of the different resources out there and realizing that um, everybody, um, you know, comes at educating themselves in different ways and use different manners as well. So the list that we've compiled includes short videos, podcasts, um, actual suggested readings from books to articles, um, highlighting certain websites that have put a collection of other things together, uh, also including what available trainings that are out there, either in a module form or actually having training virtually, you know, by some of these vendors and suppliers. So um, happy, you know, our site, uh, if people just go to the AMC or they just Google um you know, racism and, and health uh, at the AAMC, it'll take you to a number of these different resources. Our, our, we have a specific website <clears throat> that basically harbors a lot of the things that we have put together from, even, even includes webinars and these podcasts I was talking about. But it also includes, um, for example, Academic Medicine, our journal, basically has put together a collection of all articles over time that have addressed racism and health for you to easily access it at the click of one button. MedEd Portal, another, the online um, peer-reviewed journal, also has a collection on racism in health, whether it's related to clinical care or whether it's related to medical education and development curriculum. Um, Our own staff have, uh, in scientific affairs, in my, my Office of Diversity Policy and Programs and Medical Education, have also put together a collection. So, um, as you can tell probably from my from my excitement is that mm-hmm. I'm really excited that, that we've taken the time to really do a lot of the work for everybody so that we can highlight some of those things that um, that we can recommend for folks. And it's not just on racism. It's also on things such as um, how do you create psychological safety, you know, within your department, within your office, so that you can have these conversations as well. Uh, things on intergroup dialogue. What the heck is that? And what does that really mean? Sort of thing. How do you have some of these courageous conversations as well? So it goes beyond just racism, but again, all to collectively together, you know, formulates, um, uh, formulates a not re- nice repository. And for those who are just starting out, we've even included a glossary of um, common terms that are being used so that, 
you know, everybody is, we're creating this, so everybody starts at this equitable place, uh, sets a, a level playing field for everybody so people don't have to feel, um, you know, um, uh, on the side uh, that, you know, gosh, you know, I have to teach myself. I don't know all these jargons. I don't know what BIPOC is, but we, we try to make it easy by creating that glossary for them. Thank you. The, I, those practical resources are so yeah, helpful. So I, I appreciate that. I say thank you from all of us. I want to just come back to something that you just touched on once again, um, it, which is that I think that many faculty find that the hardest um, is how to talk about racism and even current events with learners. So in, racism inside and outside of healthcare. And and I do want our listeners to know that we are going to be having faculty development sessions devoted to this topic and how to have these conversations over the next several months. But I'd like to ask you about this as well, very specifically, in that what do you think are the most important things to consider when having or deciding to have these difficult conversations in the classroom or if you're rounding in the hospital or in your ambulatory practice when you're teaching. I'm thinking about clinical teacher and learner. And they things are obviously going to come up and should come up related to both racism in healthcare and what's happening societally. What are some things to think about when having those conversations? Let me tell you the things that I think are bubbling in my mind up right now as you as you talk about this, um, and part of it is from my own experiences and in, in dealing with it. And I think I share a lot of those. Um, a lot of people will share a lot of the experiences that I've had. And that is number one: um, you got to get to this space of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And again, we as physicians are experts in that, right? Um, we're expected to know, but the most vulnerable place or most discomfortable place for me had always been, gosh, what if I don't know what's going on after the patient has come to see me and is relying on me to have the knowledge and skill set to help them diagnose their condition and, and prescribe a treatment. So that's been an uncomfortable space for me. But again, what I think we've learned over time is that we are experts in being uncomfortable. So it's not a foreign place. We've all been there. So I think the first thing I would say is it's okay to feel uncomfortable. We should feel uncomfortable. If we're not feeling uncomfortable, then we may not be approaching in the right way. The second piece is still related to this, and this is this whole notion about how can I expand um, my approach to vulnerability? Um, like I've mentioned before, you know, we are supposed to be experts in this vulnerability space. But I have to tell you, I mean, I remember myself, um, after reading Brene Brown's work on vulnerability, um, Brene Brown's an author that has written a number of um, excellent um, books on this particular topic area. But the, the one that resonated the most with me is that mostly what we do with our vulnerabilities, we tend to run away from it instead of looking at it as a value that we should run to and embrace, because those lessons that we learn from dealing with our own vulnerabilities is really growth, has a lot of growth potential there. And again, in talking about anti-racism and being in these places about how do I do this when I'm in the classroom and a student you know, calls me out on this sort of stuff, that's you know, going to that, towards that vulnerability and understanding 
uh, what that is. And I, one particular book comes to mind. It's her latest one called Dare to Lead. It really is kind of a synopsis of all the other books that she's read, that she's written. Really teaches you a lot about yourself, about how do you approach that vulnerability. And I think that's an important piece. The third thing I would say is that it's so important for you to know your triggers. Knows what triggers you. You know, what are those assumptions that you make um, about other people, about other groups based on your own um, held internal stereotypes that you hold about certain groups? You know, what experiences, you have to ask yourself, you know, what experiences really created those assumptions and reactions? And the reason I'm asking you to do that is because in this space, you need to understand what triggers you. Um, and the approach I've used with this um, is more of a mindfulness practice approach. So when I find myself being triggered, it's certain there's four questions I tend to ask myself in order to get into the space of understanding this about myself. And I ask myself, you know, why is this person or this particular experience and why is it triggering me? The second question is, is this reminding me of something that I've already experienced in the past? A third one would be, why am I finding this person or this situation so difficult? The fourth one is, how did it affect me before? Why is it affecting me in the same way? You know, is there anything about the traditions, the culture, the beliefs that I have, the stereotypes I have, is really impacting me right now and being triggered, right? And so those questions then push me to more of using this cultural humility approach, and that is... How can I engage the resistance that I'm feeling? How can I be open to the other's perspective in order for me to gain a better understanding? But also understanding that even if I'm open to somebody's other perspective, it doesn't mean I agree with them. It just helps me to understand why you think the way you do, which may be a polar opposite to me, but gives me a better understanding of the situation I'm dealing with and why you're triggering me. And then the, the, the third component is of culture humility is listening with the intent of being influenced in some way. And then the last component of humility is being open that, boy, what I may hear uh, in the answers to these questions, I have to be open to change myself as well. So I think, you know, again, I think these seem very philosophical, but they really are, I think, really at the base, uh, the foundation that as we begin doing this and as we begin finding ourselves in a place that we may not know about something, um, and then we're being triggered by our learners, let's say, from a current event. It's okay to say that what you don't know. But it's also important, just as important to ask our learners, tell me from your lived experiences, what can I learn from you? Because um, I think that that, again, also allows us to have the dialogue we need um, where our learners would love for you to say, teach me what I may not know. You know, it's not your responsibility. I'm just asking as a human being, I really want to know about your lived experiences because I don't know what it's like being black. I have never had that experience because I didn't grow up in those areas and not using an excuse. I just want to know. Um, and then I want to feed back to what I'm hearing sort of a thing so that we can. And then I also want you to understand, you know, where my lived experiences as well. So I think that's very basic, but I think that's kind of where we all begin to start. I do believe our students and residents are learning how to be equity-minded physicians, which is a term I've heard you use, and equity-minded leaders and educators. 
and that they'll continue to advocate for change and justice. Do you also feel encouraged by the response of medical students right now and how you imagine their world and the lived experiences of their learners ultimately might be quite different? Yeah. No, I I have to tell you, I am just ecstatic about this generation with regards to the courage that they have had to really step forward. Um, and, but not only complain, right? Not only bring the issues at hand, but also think about solutions. A lot of them have brought, um, you know, their past experiences, not only lived experiences as, as a human being, but also some other experiences they may have had in other careers that they had before they came to medical school. Um, but really putting it, um, you know, putting it forward, you know, a lot of them have come with a lot of recommendations that are very evidence-based. I mean, they, they're doing the work. Um, they are in front lines and things. And that's pretty clear from this generation. Um, you know, they have a, a major intent in becoming tomorrow's health activists because they see themselves as a role not only in providing excellent, comprehensive, quality, and culturally sensitive um, health care, but I think they also see their role in really changing policy um, and really being health advocates for the communities that they represent. Um, I have never seen the energy that they're bringing forward um, over these years. And I've been, in, you know, in academic medicine for a long time. I was a practicing physician and had, I remember being a clinical preceptor in a rural area and seeing students. But I don't think I've ever witnessed, and even as a diversity dean at two different institutions, the amount of energy, the amount of expertise, um, but just the strong desire um, to want to be trained. David, thank you so much for sharing your leadership, your passion for your work, and your expertise with us today. Lisa, it's been such a pleasure. It's so it's also so fun to talk to you. And I'm just so again, I applaud the work that you're doing at Netter and the continued work that I see you doing and um, just the advocacy that you have for your learners and the, and the passion that you have to help them find the way. That's thank great. You so thank much, you for David. thank you for the time. Thank you. My sincerest thanks to Dr. David Acosta for helping us kick off this podcast series with a great discussion. This was the Told Me podcast to learn and develop for medical educators from the Netter School of Medicine Faculty Development Program at Quinnipiac University. I'm Lisa Coplett. Thanks for listening and join me for our next podcast. It will be the first episode of a three-part series on giving feedback. I'll be interviewing Dr. Luba Konopasek, our Senior Associate Dean for Education. We'll be talking about how to give effective feedback to learners, which is a challenge for everyone. I would also like to thank the people who contributed to today's show, Katie Lyons, our producer, and David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at Netter, email katie.lyons at qu.edu. For more information on all Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts. 